Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. All right, we've been talking a lot about some of the key concepts here in Seminar 16, especially as they start popping in the topology of the subject that we've developed out of Lacan's hypothesis, the wager that he puts forth here, not to be confused with Pascal's, is that the signifier is what represents a subject to and for another signifier. We've seen this topology before. We've been messing with it. We've been defining and working through some of the concepts that are at play in there. We talked about the S2 being a subset of the big other, an excised subset. We also talked about the barred subject. We're going to do a little bit more of that today as well. Um, we focused a lot on S1. S1 is really the hinge point for the topology of the subject. You can see it in the topology, but conceptually it also functions as a hinge or a door that can open in different directions if you prefer that metaphor. You can make up your mind as this lecture proceeds. When we're working with S1, we've been talking about it as two potential functions, as two different operations, but connected in some way. First, as a unary trait, and second, as a master signifier. In chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Seminar 16, we see Lacan gradually shifting away from understanding S1 as a unary trait and more towards understanding it as a master signifier. This is what we've been talking about recently. It's what we want to kind of work our way towards um, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. I've got some passages selected, but first, let's just summarize where we've been. So the unary trait in question, I said, was itself a set comprised of two distinct moments. And this was unary trait one and unary trait two, cobbled together in this set that is typically known as the unary trait. And each of these moments in the unary trait, I said, corresponded to one of the first two graphs that Lacan is using in the subversion of the subject essay to build his graph of desire. So unary trait one, which would result in the production of a superego, is one where the signifier S1 functions as a prohibition, a subjugation, and a suppression. Here is the no of the father. Here is the un in the sense of German and English as a negation. Here we see a subject being split, barred, and holed out. This is the subject that corresponds to graph one in the subversion of the subject essay. This is the classic split subject. The second element in the set that comprises the unary trait, unary trait two as I put it, is one that results in not a superego, but an ego ideal. And this is what we see as Lacan shifts from graph one in the subversion of the subject essay to graph two in the subversion of the subject essay. 
Now the barred subject that was the effect of graph 1 has shifted into the position of the origin of the effect known as the ego ideal in graph 2. If the first moment in the unary trait is one of prohibition, the second, I've said, is one of positionality. If the first moment in this unary trait is one of subjugation, I stuck with Bruce Fink's distinction and said the second was one of subjectivization. And if the first unary trait functions as suppression, the second unary trait is one that opens the door to sublimation. In the first, we see the no of the father. In the second, we see the second element in the name of the father, namely the name of the father. Here we see the un, the un, not in the German and English negative sense, but in the French sense of one, of oneness. Um, if the first unary trait is one that holds out the subject, we could say that the second unary trait is one that fills in the subject. And that's a really important distinction here. The subject is hold out at the level of the superego and filled in at the level of the ego ideal. And again, this is all pretty much review because in the subversion of the subject essay, you can see Lacan making this move from graph one to graph two. Now what's at stake for us ultimately is a new graph. Maybe it could be graph 2.5, but where in graph 3 in the subversion of the subject essay, Lacan makes a move north, up into the field of desire and the like, we're going to stay a little bit lower and rewrite graphs 1 and 2 in a new way, which is kind of what we were working on last time in our lecture on chapter 8. We'll come back to that in a little while. Um, for now, let's just focus on getting some sense of what Lacan is up to here with this notion of the unary trait, and marking slowly the shift from S1 as the unary trait to S1 as the master signifier. So let's look at some passages here that I think can kind of guide us to where we want to be. If you start, interestingly enough, in chapter 10, we can get a good leg up on the topic. And what we're going to do here is we're going to look at chapters 9, 10, and 11. Not exactly in that order. I'm going to try and thread the needle a little bit differently here. But check out chapter 10, page 8. It's a great spot for us to begin because it gives us a sense of, of what Lacan is up to in a very broad, basic way. And for readers um, that have read anything in critical social thought since the late 1960s, this is going to be pretty redundant. It's going to seem like it's not very interesting. And, and maybe it's not, but it gives us a broad sense of what's at stake for Lacan. So we're in chapter 10, page 8, toward the bottom of the English translation we're working with. We're about six lines up from the bottom. The phrase begins, whoever in the future. And check this out. Whoever in the future, precisely because something has happened to this value of knowledge, wants to occupy a place that contributes in any way to this place of formation, even if it is mathematics, biochemistry, or anything else whatsoever, would do well to be a psychoanalyst. 
if this is how there must be defined someone for whom there exists this question of the dependence of the subject with respect to the discourse that holds him and not that he holds. Okay, a lot of our terms are firing here. So mathematics, biochemistry, these aren't simply formations. These are discourses. They are disciplines. And you could add to the list philosophy, sociology, and the like. These are discourses. In other words, they are S2s. They are excised subsets of the absolute totalizing operation known as the big other. These are discourses or disciplines that have with them not just core concepts, which could double as S1s. So biochemistry may have as a core concept or an S1 life. Mathematics as a core concept may have number. We go on listing disciplines and the core concepts that they have. Lacan here is focused on the subjects that they all too often ignore. This is the important part. For psychoanalysis, the subjects that other disciplines ignore are precisely the, the among their objects of study. The dependence of the subject with respect to the discourse that holds him, not that he holds. So there's an allusion here to another error. Not only do these disciplines ignore the subjects that they condition, mathematics lacks a theory of the mathematician. Biochemistry may have much to say about life, but doesn't have much to say about that of the biochemist. This is part of what Lacan's arguing here. He's also making that point that we saw at the start of Seminar 16, which is that these subjects, at some level they are agents of the discourses that hold or contain them, but in a much more fundamental sense, they're dependent on these discourses. They're conditioned by these discourses more than these discourses are conditioned by subjects. So you do not have a discourse of mathematics, according to Lacan nor do you simply have a mathematician, according to Lacan. Instead, what you have is a mathematics that precedes the formation of a mathematician, and a mathematician that then, by practicing the discourse of mathematics, keeps it alive. But make no mistake, the discourse of mathematics precedes the subject. So these are a couple of points that we're getting here on uh, page 8 in chapter 10. It's worthwhile to just hang on to this thought. Lacan is here recentering whatever counts as psychoanalytic inquiry on the subjects that many discourses neglect to consider, be that mathematician, the biochemist, or anything of the sort. Moving forward, or I mean backward, chapter 9, page 5, gives us another great point here. And what makes this page so terrific, I think, is that it really does start to show Lacan shifting from an understanding of S1 from unary trait to that of master signifier. And I think the unary trait stuff is interesting, and I'm satisfied with the work that we've done with it so far, but I think the stuff on the master signifier is so much more key to what he's up to here in Seminar 16. So we're on page 5 of chapter 9 in our English translation. We're smack dab in the middle of the page with a sentence that begins, what is important for us? Now let's consider this. 
What is important for us, undoubtedly? What is going to count in our plumbing of Pascal's wager? So this is a really important move because as you're reading this seminar, there's a hell of a lot being said about Pascal's wager. And this is one of those rare passages where Lacan's going to come out and say, all right, here's what's at stake. Here's what we're actually trying to figure out with all of this tabling of Pascal's wager. What's important for us undoubtedly, what is going to count in our plumbing of Pascal's wager, is what becomes of it in the sense that in a no less infinite fashion, little a can be approached. That once more there appears to us what gives in an analogical form, what is involved in the relationship of 1 to 1 plus a. So here's that mathematical formula that Lacan's been playing with. 1 over little a equals 1 plus a. We can make a lot of that here. And I think as we get into the next and final chapter in this lecture 11, what we'll see is that Lacan is um, able to show us what that a is relative to the 1. Here, though, he's queuing it up. What is involved in the relationship of 1 to 1 plus a? Namely, this little a, in which alone there can be grasped what is involved in enjoyment as compared to what is created from the appearance of a loss. Now, this is pretty interesting here. What I think Lacan is here doing is he is taking objet a and splitting it into two indexical functions. So what is created from the appearance of a loss? This is objet a as lack, which is an effect or a result of the loss of castration marked by minus phi, the one that we talked about in our last lecture and the one that we've talked about a lot in previous series. Here, though, we've got another element here, a notion of objet a that is involved in enjoyment. And it's not coincidental that it's in these chapters that he starts talking about the absolute subject of enjoyment. So let's just hold on to this for a second. We have two functions of objet a that are starting to emerge here. Whether Lacan continues with this or not, we'll see. But it's worth noting. Objet a is not simply the experience of lack that couples with the more original experience of loss to create the cause of desire. He's here queuing it up as something else, something I would argue that is relevant to the barred other. But let's see where we go with this. Moving on, chapter 11. So we started with 10, we went back to 9, and now we're going to leapfrog 10 and go into 11 to get to the real meat of what's happening here. Chapter 11 is a long one. It starts with this letter that Lacan received from somebody, among other things, a, gr a group of folks requesting one of his bow ties. Interesting. Uh, but for us, far more fascinating is what happens or starts to happen at the bottom of page 16 in chapter 11. It's really pages 16 to 18 in chapter 11 that are so dynamite for what we're up to here. Whatever may be the case for what is at stake in this world, which is that of signifiers, Lacan says at the bottom of page 16, chapter 11. I cannot do better today with the advancing time 
than to draw again what I gave here in the first terms that I put forward, namely those to which the moment we have got to in mathematical logic allows us to give some rigor to. you got to love Lacan under a time pressure. He's running out of time in his 11th lecture in Seminar 16. And this guy, when he starts running out of time, he just cuts to the chase. That's one of the reasons why I say a lot of the great insights that are crystallized in Lacan's thought occur at the end of his lectures in various seminars. He realizes he's running out of time, and then he just lays it out in ways that I think are, are, um, are extremely helpful. You might also note that when he fails to do this, it's oftentimes the very first thing he does in the subsequent lecture in the series, is he will then show up and and lay out what he would have laid out last time if he had had, I don't know, 10 more minutes. In a kind of clear moment before he gets into some of the nuts and bolts, the core issues that he likes to burrow into so often. So here he is at the end of his 11th lecture in Seminar 16, and the man is out of time. And he wants to say that mathematical logic can help us give some rigor to something relevant to signifiers. And in starting from the definition of the signifier, he goes on, as being, here's the hypothesis, what represents a subject for another signifier. I am saying is other, this signifier, which simply means that it is signifying. So this other signifier, he is saying, is other which simply means that it's signifying. Now, you can hear him talking about S2. S2 is an alternate signifier. It's a different signifier than S1. And in a sense, that's what relates the two, is there's a differential relation between them that marks S1 as radically distinct from S2. Here, he wants to mark that S2 as very closely associated with the big other. Now, we know that they are not equivalent S2, again, is an excised subset of the big other. It is, let's say, the discourse of philosophy. Let's say it's the discourse of psychoanalysis. Let's say it's biochemistry or mathematics, as we've been talking about. These are subsets of the whole field of discourse itself known as the big other. Here, though, Lacan is, again, tracing that line, drawing a very strong line between S2 and uh, big A, the big other. Let's see where he goes with this, though. Because what characterizes, what grounds the signifier, is absolutely nothing whatsoever that is attached to it as sense as such. Now, which signifier is he talking about here? He's talking about the S1, and he's talking about it in a way that is very different from the function it serves in the passage from the big other to an S2 to an S1 to a split subject, namely as unary trait. Here he's queuing up a very different function of that S1. What characterizes, what grounds the S1 is absolutely nothing whatsoever that is attached to it as sense as such. What grounds S1, he says, is its difference. Namely, not something that is stuck to it, to itself, and would allow it to be identified, 
but the fact that all the others are different to it. What distinguishes S1 from S2 is the fact that it is not among S2. All the other signifiers are distinct from this S1. It is the difference that is connected to S1 at this point. Not a meaning, and certainly not one that would allow for some kind of an identification. And if you track Lacan closely here, you know that the unary trait is part of this process, this two-part show known as symbolic identification, which we defined as one element that produces a superego and another that produces an ego ideal, and you could throw your ideal ego in there as well. But that process of symbolic identification is the effect the unary trait has on a subject. Here, what he's saying is identification ain't got nothing to do with this. Now, that might be a heavy-handed reading here. All he's saying is that that S2 cannot be named. It can't be identified, except to say that it marks a radically ulterior relationship to S2. The fact that all the other signifiers are simply different from it. Its, different, its difference resides in the others. And that's an interesting move that's happening here, too, is that Lacan isn't even going to fully allow difference to take up lodging in or around S1. He's going to want to pin it on S2 here as well. Reading on. That is why this constitutes a step forward, but an inaugural step by asking oneself whether, from this big other, one can make a class, one can make a sack, one, and one can, in a word, make what is involved in this famous capital O, one. Now, obviously, here what he's talking about is whether or not the big other can be whole, complete, realizing its operational aim, not its desire. Thank you very much to folks in last Friday's discussion section. It was a brilliant, brilliant um, discussion about uh, whether the big other as barred can in fact experience desire. Whether desire, in other words, is the proper way to describe the operativity of the big other in its search for absolute containment. Here Lacan is queuing up that very same operativity again. As a class, as a sack, as the famous one, he's talking about the absolute container that the big other purports to be, and he wants to ask whether this is possible. Now we know, going into this, that it's not going to be possible. The other, the big other, does not exist except as barred, as lacking. So this possibility of it becoming an absolute container is in fact an impossibility. But he's raising it as a question for his audience here. And he says, let's see whether this could play out. Because then, as I have already drawn it, if the big A is one, it must include this S, this S1, insofar as it is the representative of the subject. So here's what he's saying. If it's possible that the big other exists, in other words, that it can encompass everything and everyone and all things and so on and so forth, um, it must also include this S1 that cannot be identified, that has a differential relation and little more, if anything more, to S2. And that this S1 is in turn representative of the subject. So you have almost two elements that the big other is struggling with here. There's the S1, 
that exists only in differential relation to S2. And then there is the subject that S1 represents to the S2. And then Lacan asks, for what? Why? For the big other. Now reading those again. Because then, as I have already drawn it, if the big other is one, it must include this S1, insofar as it is the representative of the barred subject. A representative for what? For big other, of course. Here, again, allowing for a very strong link between S2 and the big other. And this big other, by being the same as the one you have just seen here, as you see, is found to be what it is, a predicate insofar as, check this out, the one in question is no longer the unary trait, but the unifying one that defines the field of the other. Here we get a clean shift away from an understanding of S1 as the unary trait that the big other imposes on the subject, bifurcating it, holding it out in order to having it be filled in, all the stuff we've been talking about. No longer are we dealing with S1 in that function. Now S1 serves the unif as the unifying one that defines the field of the other. The word for this is master signifier. Here the S1 is realizing that second function that I mentioned in the last lecture and that we're now finally getting around to talking about here. It's no longer that of a unary trait for the subject, but instead a unifying one, if you will, for the other, the barred other in this case. Here we see that, again that shift from unary trait to master signifier at the level of S1. This is what I mean when I say that it's a door that opens in different directions. It doesn't just open one way from the big other into the, the split subject. It also opens from the split subject into the big other. And that's what we're seeing here is S1 really becomes the hinge, a hinge point in the relationship between the barred other and the barred subject. In other words, you see there being indefinitely reproduced the following, with here something that never finds its name, namely S1, unless you give it in an arbitrary fashion. And that is precisely in order to say that it does not have a name that names it, that I designate it by the most discrete letter, the letter little a. So here what we have is little a somehow designating the S1 when it functions as a master signifier, namely as a signifier of pure difference. Little a here is again, as we've seen it in many other discussions of Lacan's work, it's the differential relationship between any two entities that allows them to appear distinct. Now you've heard me mention this so many times at this point, you should know the exact mathematical equation that I'm gonna throw up next. Get it? One plus one equals three. This is that fuzzy math that comes up time and time again whenever we're discussing obje a. Obje a is not the one and not the other, it's the differential relationship that allows the one to remain distinct and appear different from the other. So you can locate obje a wherever you want on the topology of the subject. 
It could be in the arrow that points from S1 to S2. It can be in the bar that separates S1 from the split subject. It can be the bar itself that marks the split subject. You know that eventually in seminar 17, Lacan's going to place it in the lower right-hand quadrant of the baseline discourse, the master's discourse. For here, though, he's queuing it up and offering it as a designator or an index for the nameless entity, the unidentifiable entity known as S1, when it serves as a master signifier. Now, we're going to see what we can do with this. We can read on here on page 17, chapter 11. Things get good again on the next page, chapter 11, page 18. Toward the end of that first full paragraph, or the first paragraph at the top, it is insofar as this as in this game, here we are seven lines down from the top of the page, there is something that, with respect to the one, is positioned as questioning what the one becomes when I, little a, am lacking to him. And at this point where I am lacking to him, if I posit myself once again as I, it will be to question him about what results from the fact that I posited this lack. And then, blasting down about five more lines, you have him cutting to the chase even more. Again, we're at the very end. We're a couple pages out from the end of this already lengthy lecture, the 11th in Seminar 16. So it's no surprise we see Lacan cut into the chase. Again, what he's asking about is the relationship between one, the one, and little a. You see that right in the middle of page 18. That's enough for chapters 9, 10, and 11. It does give us, though, an opportunity to think hard about the formula Lacan's been messing with. 1 over a equals 1 plus a. Now, if you're thinking about this at the level of the unary trait, where the 1 over a, the s1 here, is the unary trait, you can see 1 as the unary trait and a as the barred desirous subject that is subjugated and subjectivized according to a unary trait that the big other has passed on. Here we see the basic understanding that we've been working with around the unary trait, and the result being a subject that is irremediably split and desirous. Classic Lacan, classic understanding of the effects of castration and the types of ego formations that result from this, particularly for our purposes, the superego and the ego ideal. Now, consider this from another angle, though, that where one occupies that of a master signifier relative to the big other. Here, what we can reread this formula as saying is the one that is over A is the oneness that the big other aspires towards or is goaded by, that its operativity drives its toward but it is always being divided by something that it can't count, that is left out, here designated by the little a under the one. So one over a says that the oneness that the big other seeks to effect, whether it desires it or not, is always being prevented or barred by something that it can't fully encompass, something that it cannot account for. Here it's an S1, that is unnameable, unidentifiable in its representational relation to a split subject. And as a result, here's the second part of that equation. 
1 over a equals 1 plus a means that in order for the big other to effect its absolute containment and thus serve as the sack or the set that Lacan is here toying with in chapter 11, it has to continually add this little a. The operativity of the big other, in other words, is always 1 plus a. And then it encompasses that one, and then there's another a that drops out that has to be encompassed. This is partly what he's doing with infinity in this section. So we have these formulas for a reason, and like the terms that we've been messing with, what I'm trying to do is break them apart and show you that there are different subsets and subfunctions happening in each. The unary trait has two elements, much as S1 itself can be a unary trait or a master signifier. What we've done is we are now operating at the level of an S1 that doesn't just serve as a unary trait, but also doubles in some cases as, an, as a master signifier vis-a-vis -vis the barred other. And that connecting those dots is really what we need to be up to next. Um, whether that requires us to read deeper into chapters 9, 10, or 11, I don't know, but it definitely incites us to do a little bit more diagram work and see if we can come up with a clear diagram that captures this hinge-like function of S1 as it moves and allows for movement between the unary trait that defines as it divides the subject and the master signifier that defines as it also divides the big other. We're about to do some diagram work. And some diagram work that I really hope is going to help us clear up this really tangled diagram that we were messing with last time. It was one that took its start from graphs 1 and 2 in the subversion of the subject essay. And you've read the essay. You know what this thing looks like something like this and you've got your return or retro arrow here and we started messing around with this and suggesting that it could be rewritten somewhat along these lines combined in a way with the topology of the subject that Lacan is messing with here in seminar 16. Now what we have so far and again, this is just review, is we have the idea that S2 is a subset of the big other. It's an excise subset of the big other. And then we've got this circuit from the big other to its interpretive apparatus to the delivery of an S1 as unary trait that would in turn intrude upon the subject, bar the subject, divide the subject. And the two divisions that we were messing with here were that of a superego that would result from the prohibitive logic of the unary trait and the ego ideal, which would deal with the um, positional aspect of the unary trait. Now we don't need to review that because what we're going back to is this red arrow again. The green here tells us S1 is operating as a unary trait. 
But what we saw in the readings we were just working through in chapter 11 is that there's somehow a way for S1 to serve this other purpose, not just as unary trait that informs the subject and intrudes upon the subject, but also as master signifier that would intrude, in a sense, on this S2 that Lacan is so key at this point, as we saw in 11, to line up with the big other. And we know that they're connected. We know it's a strong connection. That's what we've learned from Seminar 16 also, is that this is a connection by way of subset. S2 is a subset of the big other that has been excised. Now, this diagram, however useful it's been, I think needs to be redrawn. But first, let's summarize it really quickly. What you see in graph three, in the subversion of the subject essay, is Lacan moving up into the field of desire, into the field of the drive. What I'd like to suggest again is that we stay down in the lower half of this graph and start doing our reinventions there. Um, to have the big other here at the top of the graph we've been working with, I also want to suggest that this is just a little bit too simplistic. Here we have the field of language, here we have the field of the big other, the field of the symbolic, and that somehow down here you have the field of the subject. And I think that's a slightly too simplistic for what we're up to here. Why? Because the unary trait that informs the formation of the bard subject was delivered by the big other to the subject. So it's not really fair to say that we've got a split here, which is partly why I like Lacan introducing a strong connection to the big other here in chapter 11. <clears throat> in short, the split subject comes from A. Now, <clears throat> this is not all that we can see here. We can add this other function with the red arrow that we're going to talk about. So if as a unary trait, we see the big other barring the subject. As master signifier, we see the barred subject barring the big other. And that's a formula that I think we can work with here, sticking with the red for clarity. When S1 functions as a master signifier, we see a chain of influence. And here, the endpoint is not a full, complete other, but a barred other, an other that can't help but always try and add a certain enigmatic, unnamed, unidentifiable element to its totalizing count. Here we see the big other, as always, a search for oneness that can't help but keep adding. <clears throat> it's always that one plus A. Now, at the risk of putting too fine a point on this, I think that we could say that the split subject here is an enunciating subject. This is a living subject. This is a speaking being. And we're going to call ours, let's just call him Anthony. Here's Anthony. He's our speaking being. Now, it's telling that we're putting this in quotation marks. 
This is for purposes of illustration, just to help us understand a little bit better this crucial element, this S1 that is now functioning as a master signifier vis-a-vis -vis the big, soon-to-be barred other. This is a signifier we heard in chapter 11 that is almost unnameable to the point of being nonsensical. You can fit in here, if you want an example, almost any sort of slang, especially slang that hasn't quite yet appeared in the Urban Dictionary and certainly hasn't yet appeared in uh, Webster's Dictionary. So you could think of this even as a shortening of Anthony. Anthony as a split subject, affected by the naming traditions in their family, is different from the master signifier that his friends know so well. Tone. Let's just say it's tone. And you can say things about tone here that will absolutely befuddle the big other. Tone got hella riz. I asked my students the other day to name a master signifier, and riz is what came up. Now, you may or may not know what riz is. They sure as hell knew what riz was, and they explained it to me as charisma. It's short for charisma. Anthony has a lot of charisma. I'm in San Francisco, the Bay Area, so the indicative term here is usually hella, right? Biologists have life. Philosophers have being. Mathematicians have number. The Bay Area here has hella, you might say, as an S1 that chases us all around. So here you've got a master signifier that is representing a subject, but in a way that defies the big other's totalizing operative count, as we're going to see. The sentence, again, is tone, got hella riz. Anthony is very charismatic, but here spoken in a way that the big other can't quite account for. And here it's in particular the subset of the big other, which is a discourse, that we might call, to keep with our example, Webster's. Here's Webster's Dictionary. You can go to Webster's Dictionary and you may be able to look up the word tone, but you're not going to be able to see the word Anthony there, I don't think. You may look up the word hell, but you're not going to see the word hella there. You may look up the word charisma, but you sure as hell are not going to see riz there. Tone, hella, and riz are signifiers that do not appear in the discourse known as Webster's Dictionary, which is, again, a subset of the big other. Here, which might be language or all languages together, whatever the case may be, it's the absolute containment of all languages, of all words would be the big other. Webster's is just a specific subset of that broader collectivity. And what we're here looking at is a master signifier, three in particular, that upset, that trouble, that queer, if you will, this subset known as Webster's Dictionary. The question we now want to ask ourselves is, is there a way for us to represent this function, this linear function that I've laid out here that suggests that there's a pathway from the split subject 
to the master signifier to a subset of the big other to an other that is barred. This is not a bad way to write it, but I think we can write it better and in a way that also preserves what we've already learned about what happens when S1 functions as the unary trait. So let's give it a try. We'll save this one and start anew. If we were to try and remap some of this, we might come up with a diagram that looks something like this. And we're going to pick some new colors here. Now, with this white arrow, what I think you can clearly see is the way that the big other, by way of S2s, produces unary traits that can then be imposed on the subject, prohibiting and positioning the subject, the same way that we've discussed how the unary trait operates. That's what this white arrow would indicate. But as always, when we're working with the graphs that Lacan gives us and modifying them, there's this return arrow. And notice what I'm doing here. I'm marking this as another type of return. Whereas usually, in Lacan's terms, this would not be a return arrow at all, but the diachronic arrow of language, of words that unfold in a very specific sequence. For our purposes, this purple arrow is that of S1 as master signifier. So the white arrow is S1 as unary trait. And as such, with all the attributes we've discussed, what we're adding to this now is another arrow that shows the subject by way of a master signifier troubling an existing discourse in a way that can't help but leave the big other barred. So this is not the other that is delivering a unary trait to a subject. This is an other that is barred by a little a that it can't help but continue to leave uncounted in its operativity as a totalizing mechanism. And that's really what we're after here, is the way that the split subject is not only produced by the big other, but the way that the split subject in turn can have a splitting effect on the big other itself. In other words, again, an emphasis on the degree to which this S1 serves as a hinge, allowing for two separate functions to run through it, that of a unary trait, but also that of a master signifier. This is where we're headed. 
We're going to see what we can make of this. Ultimately, I think it's going to come down to one of the basic stakes that Lacan is up to here in seminar 16, which is what exactly is the relationship between the barred subject and the barred other? We're getting close to coming up with a formula for that, but right now we're still experimenting with some diagrams like this one to see where we can go. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.